0: Well, happy Palm Sunday to each one of you. Is this not a glorious day? My goodness. You know, in Luke's account of Palm Sunday, and you remember what Palm Sunday was. It was the Sunday before Jesus was crucified on Friday and resurrected on Sunday. It was a very important day. Jesus officially made his way into Jerusalem. And instead of coming in like a conquering king on a horse, he came in humbly on a donkey. And all the disciples and the children praised him. They said, Hosanna, which is to say salvation, has come. Blessed is the king who's coming in the name of the Lord. In Luke's account, we're told that the Pharisees did not like that one bit. And they said to Jesus, make your disciples stop saying that. And Jesus' response is is golden. He says, if they didn't praise me, the very stones would cry out. Uh, Don't you love that little children's song that says, ain't no rock going to take my place? (laughs) As they praise the Lord. And I'm so glad that we've been led this morning so that there ain't no rock that took your place either. We've been worshiping the Lord. It's always a joy to be here. Uh, I love Central Church and love you and praying for you during these days. Uh, Some of you were not here, but some of you may remember that a couple of Sundays ago when I was with you, I said, we just want to do a little on-the-job training. Let's get with Jesus into the Gospels. Let's look at Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 5. Let's just walk with Jesus uh, for a few uh, studies together. We looked at Mark 3 a few weeks ago, and we saw there Jesus calls his disciples. He takes full authority to call us. We don't go applying to him. He comes to us, and he calls us authoritatively to be with him and then to go out and do his ministry of Physical healing and service, and also evangelism. And those two things go together. And then we saw lastly in Mark chapter 3, the names of the apostles, which reminded us of this. Your name's in the book too, if you're a believer. You've been written into the book of life and never to be taken out. So it doesn't matter if anyone here remembers you or not. If the monument on the, in the cemetery is not very tall, it doesn't matter one bit who remembers you here because the Lord Jesus Christ will never forget you. Now that's what we studied. Now I want to say to those of you who may be visiting, some of you maybe haven't been in church for a long time, you're kind of wondering what's this whole thing about. Let me tell you, it's about Jesus. And the deal is, this is hard to believe, I understand this, but let me just go ahead and tell you the story. The story is, the Bible tells us we're all sinners and we're crosswise with God. And what Jesus did, he came incarnate, born of a woman, born of the Holy Spirit and a woman. He lived a perfect life, and he died on Calvary's cross to pay for our sins. So it's just as simple. If I trust in him, he takes my sins upon himself, and he gives me, in exchange, his righteousness. So I'm standing before God with as much right to enter heaven as Jesus has, because I've got his clothes on. I've got his righteousness. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Now I realize it's impossible to believe unless God mercifully today or some other day opens your eyes to see this really happened in history. It's true. It's rooted in history. It's rooted in reason. And it was revealed by God to be the truth. It really happened. He did it. And that's the reason that we're alive. That's the reason that we're joyful, no matter what the circumstances. So if you're one of those, I pray that that gospel message just just that I gave you is enough for you to see that God would love you too. You just come to him. And as the song says, uh, cast your burdens on him, cast your heart on him, and he will uh, take care of you. But I have to give you this warning, and it's in the text we're going to study, that if you become a Christian, it ain't going to be easy. You with me? Do I get an amen on that? Oh, yeah, that's what I thought. And it, when you become a Christian, yes, the burden of condemnation is lifted from you. The burden of hopelessness is gone. You know where you're going. You know who loves you. But man, in this life, oftentimes you'll have extra burdens set upon you. So anybody who's operating under the illusion that being a Christian exempts you from the troubles and travails of life will just think again. And we're going to go to a text today that shows us this very clearly. Not only are we as believers not exempt from troubles, we get ourselves in more trouble after we become Christians. I've been more crosswise with people after I became a Christian than I was before. I, was, I, I felt like I was getting along with the world in general in a much easier way before I was a Christian than after I was a Christian. Now, if you don't believe that, you just hang with me now. We're going to look at an important text, Mark chapter 4. If you'll turn there, verse 35 through verse 41, we're going to see an amazing story of Jesus and His disciples. He's called them now to be His disciples. He's going to take them on on-the-job training. Two weeks from now, we're going to look at Mark 5, where he actually takes them to the mission field, and we're going to see how we are to be on mission. But on the way, they end up in this storm, which teaches us a multitude of lessons about how we, as followers of Christ, deal with these storms that come our way. Would you stand with me as we pray and then read this, the holy word of God himself. Let us pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we're not left alone in this life to wonder how to live it. You give us a a light, a lamp. You give us the way, the truth. You give us life. And it's all in the book. And we pray that as we study Your Word, we will have that life and that light and the joy that comes from it. Speak, O Lord, for Your servants listen. Amen. Mark 4, verse 35. Hear the Word of God. Obey Him. All flesh is grass, and all its glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We all have storms. I have them. I've had many of them in the past. And if God gives me more days, I'll have more in the future. So do you. It's very important as a Christian that we understand how to deal with storms. It's hard for me to think of anything more important than for us to learn how, with Jesus, we enter storms, how we navigate storms, and how we come out of storms. And Christians are distinctive. So what we're going to learn in this text is distinctive to Christian people it marks us out, makes us different. The world will look and not understand completely until they come to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. Then they'll begin to understand. We're different. I want us to notice how we're different. Look, first of all, at verses 37, I'm sorry, verses 35, 36, and 37. And here's what we see. Number one, Jesus is the one who leads us into storms. You say, huh? I thought... I came to Jesus to get saved. (laughs) I thought I came to Jesus so life would go better. Well, it does in a lot of ways. But Jesus, once you become his disciple, he actually leads you into storms. You say, would he really do that? Oh, yes. Let me show you. Look at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, he said to them. They didn't say to him. They didn't suggest it. Jesus suggested it. He said to them, let us go across the other side. He didn't say to them, I'm going to cross the other side. Just like he didn't say, I'm going to go to the cross by myself. He said, you're going to take up your cross too. And here he says, let's go to the other side. Now, Jesus was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of God incarnate. And we don't understand everything about how the humanity and the deity of Christ relate, those two natures, how they relate to each other. We don't know exactly... When he chose not to know something, or when he chose to know everything, it's it's mysterious. But he's the Son of God, so we assume that Jesus knew that a storm would be coming. He knew a lot of things that were coming. He told us about. Surely Jesus knew that a storm was coming. So, if you've been to the Sea of Galilee and you've looked at that sea and you can see it all, you can get up on a hilltop, you can see the whole thing—eight miles across this way, sixteen miles across this way. It just, you know, if you head off after breakfast, you'll be there by lunch. Just go around, just walk around the sea if you know a storm's coming, because on the Sea of Galilee, storms are not just kind of like you're out on Pickwick and it starts to rain and it gets a little wavy. No, these are howling winds, almost hurricane force that will come down from Mount Hermon and from other places around the sea that's down in a basin and they come howling down and they roil the waters. You can have waves that are seven or eight feet high and you're in a little fishing boat and there are many boats to this day that are at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee with a lot of skeletons to go along with it because people who were fishing and didn't know the storm was coming, many of them perished. So why didn't Jesus, who knew that, why didn't he take them around and just walk around the lake? They're on their way to mission. They're going to the mission field. We'll see that in two weeks, Mark chapter 5. They're going over there to handle the gathering demoniac. But if he's going to the mission field, why didn't, doesn't he at least get them there safely and take them around? My friend Sinclair Ferguson, in preaching on this text one time, he said, here's why. It is forever beneath the dignity of the Lord Jesus Christ to take us around a storm when he can take us through one instead. Don't forget it. It's forever beneath the dignity of your Lord to circumvent a storm when he can just triumphantly take you right through it. Watch him. So Jesus takes them into a storm, he does it. We have a hard time sometimes understanding this. We know that Jesus leads us into many blessings. We get very happy about what he does for us and we praise him when things are going well but it's not very often really that the christian is thoughtful enough to stop and to praise him for taking you into a storm when you get cancer or your mama dies you praise him for being with you but you rarely praise him for the storm that has sent you into but we're going to learn that jesus does this now this is not the only place where we see the deity leading us into trouble you can look throughout the scriptures he's leading them into trouble all the time how about the babylonian captivity Jeremiah writes on behalf of God, he says, I've taken you to Babylon. So the exile, which was done by a lot of bad people, Babylonians, God says, I did that. It was an act of discipline. Or you can look at my friend Job. He's your friend too, isn't he? Job, who was a righteous, upright man who turned his back on evil, who walked with God, who was the wealthiest man around. God had blessed him mightily, we would say. And then Satan is hanging around God, wondering what he's going to do with his spare time. And God makes this statement to Satan. He says, have you considered my servant Job? I'm, I'm just thinking, Job's sitting down there going, thanks a lot, God. It's a, why would you mention my name to Satan? But of course, we know, because we've read the book, we know what the drama is. The drama is, can Satan turn one of God's people away from God, so that he would curse God. So Satan is challenging God, and God accepts the challenge. And he says, okay, Satan, have you considered Job? And Satan says, well, I would have, but you've put this hedge of protection around him. I can't even touch it. And God says, okay, I'll take your challenge. I'll drop the hedge. You say, God would do that to somebody? Mm-hmm. You ever had the hedge dropped on you? Well, it may very well happen. God dropped the hedge. We're going to have a little display here. We're going to have a wonderful drama going on. We're going to see how powerful God is to keep his own people. So he drops the hedge. Satan says, thank you. I'm about my business. And God says, just one more thing. You can have everything about him. You can attack him, but you cannot have his nefesh, his soul. That's mine. So sure enough, that's exactly what Satan does. With God's permission Satan goes and slaughters his seven sons, his three daughters, his his, uh, 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camel. That must have been a stinky place to live. But anyway, he was a wealthy man. And all this destroyed, and then Satan ends up with boils all over his body. And he's got three friends who are fine until they start talking. And then they start condemning him, telling him he's in his trouble because he... Disobeyed God, and with all the things that Job has lost, the only thing he's left really is a nagging wife. Sorry, and she says to him, "Job, why don't you just curse God and die? After all this has happened to you." And Job didn't say you're a fool. No, he didn't say that. He said, "You're speaking like a foolish woman." There's a difference between saying you're a fool and you're speaking like a fool. And that's what he said to his wife. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job never cursed God. And at one point, he even said, though the Lord slay me, yet will I trust him. Oh, he lifted up the banner of the love of God, even in the midst of his great storm and sorrows. God had been doing this for ancient times. And now in the person of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in this day at Second Presbyterian Central Church, and every church I know, you can count on it, he is leading you into storms. So he does. One day, the great hymn writer, William Cooper, you know, he wrote the hymn, uh, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. He was a man who was susceptible to profoundly deep depressions. So much so that even as a believer, he would at times become suicidal in his thoughts. And one foggy night in London, this is in the 18th century, he was so depressed he really wanted to end his life. So he goes down from his flat down to the street and gets a cab, which in that day would have been a horse-drawn buggy. And he says to the cabbie, take me to the London Bridge. Of course, he was gonna jump off. But that night, there was a severe fog. Now, London has fog all the time, you know. This was a severe fog. You could hardly see your hand in front of your face. And these cabbies, who knew the streets and the alleys and their horses knew them too, without, I mean, they could almost do it blind, surprisingly, he got lost in the fog. And he started out for London Bridge and then got lost and came back around and right back to where Cooper's flat was. And Cooper said, oh, just forget it. Can't even kill myself. And he got out of the cabby and walked it back up to his flat, got a cup of tea. And he realized what the Lord had done. And he wrote that famous hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. He plants his footstep on the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Oh, how we desperately need this. You know, the worst thing that can happen to you when you're in a storm is that you lose the sense of God's presence with you and of his sovereignty over you. His purpose is in your life. Which brings me to this question. So why in the world did Jesus then take them into this storm? Why did he think that this would have any therapeutic value for anybody for him to take them into this storm? And I'm so glad that he did. And I'm so glad that Peter went with him. Because, you know, Peter was a professional fisherman. Peter had lived his whole life on that sea. And I'm sure, like a lot of fishermen here, you can smell a storm. Ways that are inarticulate, you feel the change in barometric pressure. You're not sure if it's going up or down. You just have experienced it enough that the barometric pressure and the way the winds are blowing and the temperatures, you can feel it. You can feel a storm coming. Peter was a professional, and he knew that sea. And I'm so glad Peter didn't say to Jesus, Now, Jesus, you're just a preacher, you're just a rabbi you're not a fisherman, you're a carpenter, you're up there in the hills. We're professional fishermen. There's a storm coming, I'm not going in the boat. What if Peter had depended upon his professional expertise, his skill level, his intuition, his charm, his leadership? Instead of going with the Lord, he would have missed the drama of his life. He would have missed some important lessons that stood with him through the ages and has now stood with us. But why did Jesus do this? Well, let me just say, Jesus is is not like my four-year-old grandchild, Mac. The other day, Allison and I had our 11 grandchildren with us, maybe except for the infants. We were at the park, and there's a pond there, and we were trying to be very careful that these little children didn't fall in the pond. Well, you don't have a grandchild like Mac. Mac walks up to his five-year-old cousin and just bumps him off the dock right into the pond. I saw it with my own eyes. I'm the granddaddy. I'm merciful and so on, but I'm thinking, that rascal. So of course, all my children and their spouses, they jump in the pond, you know, they get, get my five-year-old grandson out and wipe it. He's crying and we take him to get dry clothes. Finally, Mac's daddy says to him, son, why did you do that? You know, it's the famous parental question. Why did you do that? And he said, I wanted to see if he could float. (laughs) <laughs> I'm telling you what, that's a crazy answer. Well, let me tell you this. Jesus did not send his disciples into a storm to see if they could float. He's not just being mercurial. He's not just being curious. He's, he's not entertaining himself. He has a purpose, and we're not left to ourselves to figure out what that purpose is. It's in the book. Look with me, if you will, at verses 38 through 41, and you'll see that Jesus has a purpose to send us into storms. If you've got cancer, if someone's dying, if your marriage is troubled, if your kids are wandering, if your friendships are struggling, if your church is struggling, whatever it is, there's a purpose in it, a divine purpose. God is with you the secularist always loses the sense of God's sovereignty over history. He loses the sense that there is a deity who's controlling things, and particularly my life as a believer. The Christian is distinctive. We know that our Lord will send us into these things, and we know that He does it for a purpose. Now, let's look at the purposes. First of all, in verses 38 through 40, look with me, and we'll see this, that He sends us into to the storms to refine our faith, to refine our faith. Look what happens in the sequence. In verse 38, he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on the cushion. (laughs) This complicates the story. So he sends us in the storm. We're terrified with these eight-foot waves that are going to swamp our boat. We think our life is coming to an end, and he's asleep. I think it's the only place in the New Testament where we're told that Jesus is asleep. What a time to pick to go to sleep. When we're at in our wits end, we're desperate. We don't know how this is all going to turn out. We're worried. We're frightened. We're afraid. Come on, Jesus. He's asleep on the cushion. He's asleep for two reasons. Number one, he's exhausted. He's been with you all day. You've exhausted him. You know, he's been teaching and healing people. He's been doing it for days on end. He's tired. It's nighttime. So even with a storm, he's sleeping. But the second reason is this. He trusts his father. He can put his head on a pillow at night. He knows who has him in his hands. He's no, he knows what the purpose of life is. He's not worrying. He's not afraid. He's composed. He's confident. Jesus is asleep. Now notice what happens. In the midst of this, our weaknesses are revealed. When you're in a storm, your weaknesses are going to be revealed. Your anger will sometimes be uncontrolled. Your lack of wisdom will sometimes be in public view for all to see. Your lack of forgiveness will come out. Your lack of wisdom will be displayed. Your weaknesses will all come out, your fears, your worries, and look what they, what they do. Now, with all that, we have to say, at least Peter and the others knew where to go. They did, their, their, their language, their prayer was not so hot, but at least they know, knew the one to whom to pray. So they go wake Jesus up. And I suggest you do the same thing. Hey, God, right here, Waldo, (laughs) I'm here. Are you asleep up there? That's not very respectful, not very reverent, but at least I know where to go. And Peter and the others did. But look what they say. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? What a thing to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, who in just a few months' time is going to be spread eagle naked on a tree because of your sins and mine. And you have the audacity to ask the deity if he cares about you. Does he care? But when you're in a storm, it will bring out your doubts, your fears, and the ugly things you're thinking And this is ugly, to suggest that the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't care when you're perishing, when he died so that you would not perish but have everlasting life. But that's how bad we can get when the storms come. Have you done it? I have. Things are going really bad. Well, the Lord's obviously just forgotten all about Sandy Wilson and everything I'm involved in. You know what? I'm in his ministry, but he just seems to have forgotten we have all these questions that come. And you know, when things are going well, when your health is good and your children are obedient and your grass is growing at the same rate and you just cut it off and everything's fine. You're getting paid enough to pay your bills and everything's hunky dory and you're you're just a wonderful Christian. Really what's wonderful about it is that you have self confidence. But I take away your paycheck, I take away your health, I take away happy relations. And now we'll see. Where's your confidence? Is it in yourself? Well, no, it wouldn't be because there's nothing to be confident about. So do you have any confidence left? And let me tell you, what you've got left is called faith. So what Jesus is doing is refining their faith. Let me, let me show you Peter's description of it. Leave your finger in Mark 4 and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is Peter who was in the boat. And let's see what he learned. He talks about this very thing in his own first epistle. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says, In this that is your salvation, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he says, here Peter says, Your faith is like gold. Now let me tell you what happens with gold if you want to refine it so that it's more precious gold, you've got to get the impurities out of it. So how do you do that? You heat it up, melt it, get a fire going. The dross in the gold is of lighter weight. So if you turn it into liquid, the dross will go to the top and you can just rake it off. So it is with your faith. How are we going to get your faith heated up? Through trials and tribulations and storms. And when we do that, The stuff that's lighter is going to come to the top and you'll be able to start raking it off and your faith will become refined. Now, why would Jesus do this to your faith? Let me tell you why. Your faith is the instrument by which you have intimacy with Jesus Christ. You draw near to him by your faith. It's the gift he gives you to enable you to be close to Him. Well, if He loves you, of course He values and cherishes your faith. Of course He's going to refine it. Because you may have all this self-confidence and be happy, happy, happy Christians. But when the tough time comes, you know this, those of you who are older and have been through many tough times, it's when the tough time comes, you find Him more precious than ever. And the reason is you're seeking Him more arduously And all of your self-confidence is being set aside. And all you have is Him. And that is all you need. And that's what Jesus wants you to know. And so we're going into the storm. And we're going to say, Don't you care if we perish? And look what Jesus does in verse 38. He arises... And he speaks, not to the people who ask the stupid question, his disciples. But he arises to speak to the storm itself. And he just says, peace, be muzzled, be still. It's the same word he uses with demons. He says, be muzzled, that is shut up. And for you Greek scholars, it's in the perfect tense. So he's saying, shut up and stay shut up. That's what he says. You know how you are? If you're a teacher and you got kids, you all be quiet and stay quiet. Jesus is saying to this storm, be muzzled and stay muzzled. Now, some liberal scholars have said, you know, the winds come and go real rapidly. It could have been a coincidence. Jesus said, peace, be still, and the wind stopped. Hey, that's typical liberal idiocy, but let me just say, scientifically, you can stop the winds. It is true, winds do come and go. The waves don't. The waves stay there for days sometimes in a storm. But when Jesus said, be still, the waves were still and they stayed still. This is a powerful demonstration of what Jesus can do in your storm. You need to trust him. The biggest problem the disciples had was not the storm. The biggest problem they had was their lack of faith in Jesus Christ. If you've got cancer, that's not your biggest problem. If you have a troubled marriage or a troubled child, that's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is not trusting in Him, not knowing how much He cares for you, and not knowing how powerful He is. That's the problem. And the disciples showed it clearly. And when churches get, we're always going. You know, I was 22 years at Second Presbyterian. How much of my time do you think I spent as senior minister? talking with people who had conflicts. How much of my time? I'll tell you this, every day of every week. Don't you care? Don't you care? He cares more than you could ever imagine. And that's precisely why you're in your storms, because he cares for you, okay? So that's the first purpose, is to refine our faith. Here's the way Elizabeth Elliott put it. You know her story. She was Jim Elliott's wife. Elizabeth Elliott survived him because he was martyred by Alca Indians in Ecuador. Before Jim and Elizabeth were married, she was a single missionary in Peru. You, You may remember this with the Colorado Indians. She went there. There had been no evangelists there before at all. She went in to learn their language and to translate the Bible into their language. So she was there for some time because Jim Elliott said, we shouldn't get married until we both prove that we're committed missionaries. Okay, so Elizabeth does it. She spends months finding some man in the Colorado Indian tribe that will translate for her because whoever did it would be scorned. Finally, an old man agreed to be her, her language helper. She gets the entire Colorado language into an alphabet in a year, which is amazing. She then gets message from Jim that he wants to meet her in Quito, Ecuador, which you know is a very romantic city. So he wants to meet her. Now she doesn't know it, but he actually proposed to her when she got there. And uh, so she decides to make her way to Quito. Before she did, her only language helper was shot and killed. She lost her language worker. She then took her work, all of her alphabet, she put it up on top of the public transportation, which I won't describe, and she starts making her way to Ecuador, which is a long way. She gets off in Ecuador and finds that someone has stolen her suitcase. Her language helper is gone. Her language is gone. She has nothing to show for one full year of missionary service. Zero. And she remembers the famous words of Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary to India and she described these strange ashes. And so the title of the book that tells you this story Elizabeth Elliot entitled These Strange Ashes. And here's what she said about her experience. It is in accepting what God has given God gives himself Do you want God, or do you want what you think He could give you? Which do you want? It is in accepting what God has given, God gives Himself. But ladies and gentlemen, we've not come to the end of this story. That's the first purpose Jesus obviously had in mind. Where is your faith? Why are you afraid? But the second and transcendent purpose is in verse 41. And it is simply this, to reveal the glory of your Savior. Oh, you know He's glorious. We just sang about Him. But the problem is, you don't know how glorious He really is. If I could wave a wand across the evangelical American church and change one thing, it would be this, that the church would have a vision of the resplendent glory and infinite majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need more than anything else, is a sense of His majesty. And if you'll look in verse 41, you'll see what happened. First of all, they're filled with great fear, fearful fear, uh, the language says. They were terrified of the storm, and now they're terrified of Jesus. Who alone can still the storm. The Bible, the Psalms tell us in at least three places, God alone stills storms. Nobody can still a storm but God. And Jesus just did it. They're slack-jawed. They can't believe the one to whom they're looking right now. Their eyes are bug-eyed. They're drenched from the storm, and they're looking at Jesus, terrified. And they say to one another, who is this? Who even stills the winds and the waves? Who is it? we thought we knew him. You can look in verse 36. Here was their big problem. Leaving the crowd, they took him, verse 36, with them in the boat, just as he was. That was their problem. They took him just as he was. He's a carpenter. He's a rabbi. He's just like us. He's a little better than we are, a little more powerful than we are. He's a better preacher than we are. They took him just as he was. That was their problem. Now they find out he's the the Lord of the wind and the waves. He's the Lord of the cosmos. Who is this? So when you're in your storm, the Lord is refining the way by which you and he know intimacy, your faith. And he is showing you who he really is when he resolves the storm. Now you say to me, Pastor, I've got some storms I don't think are ever going to get resolved in this life. My mama died when I was 15. How are you going to bring her back? I've got cancer, and it looks from all the doctors are saying, I just don't have much time to live. My marriage was dissolved 10 years ago, and he remarried, and how am I going to put that back together? My kids are upset, and it just doesn't look like things are going to work out for me. Once again, refer to Peter. He's the one who learned the lesson. In First Peter 1, you'll notice he says, It is tested by fire, so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're distinctive. We don't bind all of our happiness in our 3 score and 10. Our happiness is bound in eternal, in eternal life. We're given eternal life. That's our perspective. We know that when we die we're coming back. And not with a body that's vulnerable and humble, it's a body that's gloriously resurrected that's just like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a sense of future destiny. And I'm not just whistling in the dark, and I'm not, this is not just pie in the sky. It's only pie in the sky if you don't believe it. If you believe it, you know we have a destiny where everything is going to be healed. And at the end of the day, Jesus is going to come back and say, Peace, be still, and everything will be healed, and everything will be right. And when that happens, you're going to be like a little coil spring. You know, with a spring, if you push it down and then you take the lid off, boing, well, guess what? You're just like a coiled spring and all the weights of the trials and the storms and the afflictions it just presses you down, presses you down. I'm 66 years old. I got 66 years of just being pressed down. But when the lid is taken off of Jesus, that's what revelation means. The lid comes off. I'm going to be revealed too. And that means my lid's coming off. And kaboom! Praise and honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ precisely because I've been taken into storm after storm after storm that could only fund its rev- re- resolution at the appearance, the blessed appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize what He's doing to you? He is preparing you for an eternity of joy. He's strengthening your faith now, and He is preparing you to see Him with praise in your heart. And on your lips. Oh, Central's a good singing church. I love to be here to worship with you. I'm telling you what, though, folks, this ain't nothing compared to what we're going to see when we see Him, because all those springs are going to be released. Everybody's going to explode with joy, unspeakable joy, and full of glory. Don't despise the storm. It's forever beneath His dignity to take you around it when He can take you through it instead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we submit ourselves to Your gracious providence. You are the one who controls the wind and the waves. You're the one who controls our bodies, our relationships, our environment, everything about us. And we confess this morning there have been many times when in our vaunted self-confidence we thought we could handle it ourselves and then... We find we have to come pleading with you to wake up and show us your care and your mercy, and you do over and over again. But the promise of your coming again is the greatest thing that we could possibly imagine. And we do imagine what will that be like when you still everything that's evil, everything that afflicts us, everything that opposes us. We worship you. We praise you. We adore you even now as we contemplate and anticipate the wondrous glories to come. We make our prayer, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen.